So we're here today to discuss the upcoming summit between uh, President Trump and Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. So we're here today with Michelle Flournoy, CNAS's CEO, uh, who has recently returned from Israel, and Alan Goldenberg, the director of our Middle East Security Program, who uh, has written a number of reports on this, including uh, the U.S. strategy after the Iran deal, a security system for a two-state solution, and lessons from the 2013-2014 Israeli-Palestinian final status negotiations, which are all available at cnas.org. So, Michelle, let me start with you. Uh, you're recently returned from Israel. What are your uh, impressions uh, from being on the ground? Well, um, first of all, I think this trip uh, comes in a very interesting time in terms of the domestic political context in Israel. Um, Bibi Netanyahu has been Prime Minister seems like forever. He's been sort of seen as undefeatable, and yet now for the first time he is facing two very serious uh, corruption charges, uh, cases that are being pursued against him. And so what was interesting when I attended the INSS conference was just about every politician who came to speak, when they spoke they seemed to be running for Prime Minister. So there is some sense of vulnerability uh, for him, which is, is not something thing he's had um, very often in recent years. Um, but more pre prevalent was the, the political reaction in Israel to Trump's election. And it really spanned the spectrum. On the far right, you had something close to uh, an initial sense of euphoria that, you know, all constraints were off. We could start thinking about annexing territory, pursuing settlements unchecked. You know, this perception that the U.S. would no longer put any pressure on Israel whatsoever on any issue. On the left uh, and in the center, I think you had a little bit more uncertainty and anxiety about, well, where would that take us? Um, you know, I think there's a still pretty strong consensus inside Israel for a two-state solution, but the, the debate that's emerging is if the right were to pursue a number of these unilateral actions, what's the end state of that? What, what is, where does that take Israel long, long term? Um, I think the, um, what was probably underestimated um, in the discussion in Israel is Trump's unpredictability. Um, and we've seen even since, in just in recent days, um, new statements on his views on settlements, on the embassy and so forth that, you know, maybe contrast with some of what those around him, some of his advisors have said, which had contributed to this sense of euphoria on the right. I think they've also not really thought through um, how Trump's moves in other foreign policy areas might affect Israel's interests. Um, for example, you know, what if uh, Trump pursued a deal with Russia on Syria? Um, is he really going to, you know, have Israel's interests on the outcome of that deal fully in mind when that's negotiated? Um, the last thing I'll say is, um, you know, still very high confidence across the board, and I think rightly so, in the security relationship. Uh, President Obama left an unprecedentedly strong legacy in that regard. Everybody expects Trump to maintain that, despite his rhetoric about America first and his general skepticism about U.S. security assistance to allies. I think everybody expects that Israel will be treated as an exception. 
Um, and uh, and then lastly, expectations are very large um, in terms of how U.S. policy will change on Iran. Let me stop there and let yeah. let Iran. And Iran, let me follow up. Then, what do uh, what does Prime Minister Netanyahu need out of this meeting? And then, what does um, what does President Trump need out of this meeting? Uh, well, I think uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is going to show up and first and foremost focus on Iran. That's what I expect issue number one to be for him. Uh, he will. Uh, he's he's indicated that all along. Uh, he this is in some ways is his white whale. He's been chasing it for a long time. I think you have a lot of security officials who are recommending to Netanyahu that maybe he not pursue this approach. That he continue to that he support the agreement or at least look for other areas to focus on. Uh, but Netanyahu has said both publicly and privately uh, that he plans to encourage Trump to renegotiate the agreement. And it's not exactly clear how the Trump administration is going to react to something like that. Uh, publicly, Netanyahu has been. Um, or Trump and his team have been uh, supportive of, of pushing back on Iran. The president has criticized the nuclear deal, but you've also seen them say that they're going to respect the agreement and keep America's word. So we're going to have to see about that. On the Palestinians, I think it's going to be even more unpredictable and unclear. You know, as, as Michelle referenced, we, we had this interview that, that uh, President Trump did uh, with, uh, with the Israeli paper, Israel Hayom, Sheldon Adelson's uh, uh, paper in Israel. Uh, and the language there on settlements was pretty interesting. He, he seems to be criticizing settlements, but at the same time leaving the Netanyahu government a lot of flexibility with which to continue to build. Pretty much everywhere in the West Bank, just don't build new settlements. So importantly, the language on settlements does not say don't build in areas where we expect likely you're going to have to evacuate. It's still okay to build there uh, and continue to build very deep in the West Bank. Uh, just don't start any new settlements. So in, for Netanyahu, in some ways, that's a dream scenario. He's looking for some criticism of settlements that he can take to check his right wing because he's worried that if they go too far, you're going to end up with an international backlash. Uh, on the other hand, uh, he, he wants the, the space to be able to build where he wants to build. And so I think that that allows him to do that. Uh, the other thing I'll say when it comes to the Palestinians on the Jerusalem embassy and the, 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 the decision by the U.S. to move the embassy to Jerusalem, it's clear that that seems to be being punted by the administration. Netanyahu, my guess, is not going to say anything about that. Mm -hmm. He's going to basically, uh, by not saying anything, he's going to indicate that he is planning on uh, not making this a big issue. That's the hint. But he can't actually come out and say, I'm against this. If he comes out and does that, I think he puts himself in a politically liable situation. Um, you know, and then the other thing I'll just say about the Palestinians is, you know, the Trump team has has said, uh, or at least there have been some indications that they're going to try to do this negotiation with the Arab states, uh, bring the Arabs into some kind of triangle, then with the Palestinians. Um, I think that's a good idea, in that the Arab states and Israel have a lot of interests in common. 
but I just don't see it working with this Israeli government because the Arab states are going to need some kind of a political concession from Israel to the Palestinians in order to be able to take the relationship more public. There's a lot that you can do Israel, US, Egypt, but expanding beyond that into Saudi Arabia, UAE, other countries, much more questionable. Uh, finally, I think as Michelle mentioned on Syria, that'll also be an issue. I think if Netanyahu is wise, he'll come and at least lay out some red lines for what Israeli positions would be in the event of, uh, of a negotiation with the Russians. And the two big ones I see are ensuring Israel still has the freedom of action to take uh, action against and strikes against weapons that are being moved from Damascus into Lebanon to Hezbollah. And the other is ensuring that that border uh, between Israel and Syria, and also between Jordan and Syria, is controlled by, not controlled by, either IRGC Quds Force or uh, Al-Qaeda or ISIS. And right now it's controlled by moderate opposition groups, and keeping those groups in place should be part of any negotiated outcome. And so maybe I'll stop there. Yeah. Sure. Let me, let me ask uh, both of you, given uh, how much of JCPOA is more or less locked in, how much room to maneuver do Trump or Netanyahu really have vis-a-vis -vis Iran? Um, I think that, you know, on the one hand, the JCPOA, I like to say, is a lot like the Obamacare of foreign policy. They talk a lot about unwinding it and breaking it apart, but it's really difficult to do, even if you didn't like it in the first place, because it's not just a deal between Iran and the United States, it's a deal between the United States, Iran, and all the great powers. Uh, so I think that they're going to run into some, some serious complications there. Uh, though it seems like the way that Trump and Netanyahu might try to unwind the deal is just by being really tough on the Iranians uh, and trying to force the Iranians to walk away from the deal. But they're doing it, at least thus far, in such a ham-handed and clumsy way. I mean, when, it, when Trump comes out and criticizes the agreement, when Flynn in his public statement says that we don't like the deal... That's, that Iran that, is on notice. Iran is on, well, I think Iran is on notice is okay if you have a plan for what you're going to do if they violate that notice. But I think criticizing the nuclear agreement is a big problem. You should say, we're going to abide by the deal. That should be the public American posture. Even if you want to kill the deal, that should be the public American posture, because the signal that Trump is sending when he does this, and Flynn and Netanyahu, is to the entire world is, if this collapses, it will be our fault because we wanted it to collapse. And, and I think that based on the confirmation you know, hearings for people like General Mattis or Secretary Mattis, Secretary Tillerson, um, even Mike Pompeo, um, they've suggested that their advice to Trump will be, don't rip up the deal. If you want to get tough on Iran, there are all kinds of things that we can do um, to put pressure on them for their destabilizing activities in the region. We can work much more closely with Israel on you know, countering Hezbollah or the Quds Force or proliferation activities or, and, and, or so, and so forth. Um, and the same is true with the Gulf states. So <clears throat> there are ways to get tough on Iran without taking the constraints off of Iran's nuclear program um, you know, which would not serve anybody's interests at this point. And what are the ways to uh, to gain leverage over Iran or to push back on Iran? And do you see Netanyahu pushing the U.S. to do that during this summit? Yeah, Iran's written a report on this, so I'll let him start. <laughs> yeah, sure. How to, how to push back on Iran? I mean, I think. Um, the most effective way to push back against the Iranians is, is in the region. Um, 
know, that's the area I get most concerned about. Iran's support for terrorism, Iran's support for proxies. I, I worry a lot less about the ballistic missiles, even though everybody focuses on that. A ballistic missile is not nearly as meaningful if you're not going to put a nuclear warhead on it, and the deal mostly addresses that. Um, but there's a lot of things you can do. Uh, at the, you can do sanctions, which is what we all default to, but I think there's things that can be done sort of at the low-grade level, things the U.S. military could do with the Israelis, things that can be done at the intelligence level. Um, to send signals, you know, uh, we had experiences like this. For example, in 2012, uh, uh, we had this situation in the Strait of Hormuz where the Iranians were, were conducting all these different types of you know, operations that were problematic. Secretary Panetta came out and said, this is a red line for the United States. We sent some private and public messages, did some exercises, and we had some indications that those messages got through loud and clear, and the Iranians pulled back. I sometimes sort of joke that Iranian foreign policy is sort of a little bit like four-year-old foreign policy, like test, 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 test. It's, it's a brilliant strategy. I'm not, it's not meant to be condescending. I think it's important to note that. It's just test until you get pushed back. So there's ways to do that. You know, if, if you intercept weapons going to... I would love to see, for example, Secretary Mattis sitting in the Middle East uh, doing a press conference with a bunch of Iranian intercepted weapons behind him, drawing attention to this issue, bringing these, type, which is bringing these types of weapons and you know, actions to the UN, drawing attention, trying to send a signal to the world and to the Iranians we're getting more aggressive we're not going to tolerate this while staying short of um, you know, direct military confrontation that starts to go up the escalation ladder so um do you do you then see anything that uh, Netanyahu might push for, where Trump might push back, or Trump's team might push back that they're not willing to go along with? Got me to. Yeah, would, would you like to take it? Um, are we talking Iran, or we can talk about all, 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 all of the above? So on Iran, I would say I think there's a disconnect right now between Trump and his advisors. And so the question is, who wins that argument? I mean, even if you saw the the interview with Israel Hayom, you know, on, on Iran, Trump and Bibi seem to be in the exact same place, and that's not where Trump's advisors appear to be based on what's been out there. Uh, you know, so there, that could be an interesting dynamic in terms of what actually comes out of the White House. Um, on, you know, I actually think on settlements and the peace process, they'll, they'll probably be at the same place. I, you know, I don't think Bibi wants, you know, a settlements bonanza. I don't think he wants to take steps like the legalization bill last week. No. Yeah, and I would say for both sides, the primary objective of this meeting is to change the political theater of the relationship. You know, to change the vibe, the feeling, the perception that, you know, we're we're you know, it's all kumbaya. And so I think to the extent there are differences, um, they will those will be sort of downplayed or subordinated or you know not talked about publicly, and that this is really about you know um, sort of cementing a sort of uh, feel-good political relationship um, between these two leaders. And to what extent then is this for both Netanyahu and for Trump really more for domestic audiences than even for each other? I think for Netanyahu this is, I mean the domestic audience piece is huge. He wants the, the political relief of not having to be in constant fight with the new president, the way he was with Obama. So this has been a traditional attack of everybody on the all of his opponents in Israel. Um, you know, I mean, they even tried, this was one of these cockamamie things where the Israeli left was attacking Netanyahu for a $38 billion arms deal because 
his policies meant we didn't get more. I mean, that's crazy to me, <laughs> you know? Um, but that's where we are. Uh, you know, for, 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 oh, for Trump, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's probably like less important for him from a mm-hmm. domestic political perspective. It's also a great way to change the subject for a couple of days for Netanyahu. You know, when you are under investigation, your predecessor sitting in jail for corruption charges, you're now under investigation for corruption charges, having a positive trip to the United States, which is the number one ally for the state of Israel, and having the headlines at home be full of that, and, you know, painting you as a Statesman, that's a good. That's a good day for BB. And you think the great likelihood for both of them is that they tout this meeting as a large success? Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it will be a large success no yeah. matter what. Yeah. <laughs> sure. What? Uh, I'm Tracy Wilkinson from the Los Angeles Times. Apologies for being late. I was doing a radio thing. Um, I was our Jerusalem bureau chief mm-hmm. from '98 to 2003. Um, so I have a lot of interest in this topic. You, Elon, were saying as I came in, and I wanted you to elaborate, you were talking about how um, uh, this idea of Trump and Israel uh, working with the Arab states like Egypt and Saudi Arabia, and you said, I don't see it happening with this government, this Israeli government. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. You don't think that will work? Sure. So, look, there's already a lot of great security cooperation between, you know, the quiet security cooperation, especially between Egypt and Israel, and that's really booming in the last couple of years, Um, but also with the Gulf states in many cases. Saudis, some, Emiratis and others, more. Um, But to take that public, they need something on the politics of the Palestinian issue. Let's be clear, they don't really care all that much about the Palestinians. Um, well, you know, when I was working for Secretary Kerry uh, on the negotiations in 2013 and 14, uh, we tried to get uh, a, some, basically tried to get the Arab states and the Gulf states to invest some money in Abbas. We asked for like $600 million to take some pressure off of him. And out of the $600 million, we got $100 million. This is why CC got $23 billion from them at the same period, which gives you a clear sense of where their priorities are. So they're happy, they want to engage with the Israelis. They realize there is value there. But they can't do it with their publics. You know, I mean, they, are, you know, they aren't democracies, but they, they do not like to expose themselves this way politically. And, and with, with Bennett and that group, you know, if you had um, a national unity government with Herzog, yeah, this would be a great idea. If you, you know, Lapid would be the dream candidate to do this with. I mean, mm-hmm. if this is what Trump wants to pull, I could see a year from now you have Israeli elections and Trump and his team support, you know, quietly rooting for Lapid. I mean, who would have thought that when this all first started? <laughs> but but that's what, I mean, he's the one more than anyone in Israel who's carrying this mantle of the regional question. So I just, I think that most likely you walk out of this meeting on the Palestinian front with, with ideas and maybe some commitments from the Israelis to take a bunch of economic steps, and I'm hearing that, that the White House is asking the broader bureaucracy to look at all those types of things, but those economic steps, once they become politicized, they're much less likely to happen. Israeli bureaucracy gets in the way, and a lot of promises get made, and then most of them don't get it. And you don't see Bibi making any of these concessions, any of these political steps that the Arabs would need to be able to go public. I don't think he can do it and hold his coalition together. I, you know, unless unless he's bringing Herzog in, and uh-huh. I think that that ship is sort of 
sailed at this yeah. point. Sailed about six months ago. Okay. Do you see much movement in the next six months or a year on the Israeli-Palestinian relations, or is that pretty much stuck in the mud? It's stuck in the mud with until you have new leadership. I think on both both sides. Yeah. That would be my. It's, it's yeah. I, I think that's right. I think the question is how in the in that period of being stuck, you know, um, the Israelis continue to take unilateral steps and. The real question is how do you ensure that those any unilateral steps do not further complicate or undermine the prospects of a two-state solution long term. There are unilateral steps that you could take that would be actually be helpful um, to setting the conditions for a solution, but a lot of what's being pushed, particularly on the right, would be, will just make getting a deal more, more difficult, even if you posited Israeli and Palestinian leadership that was willing to take, you know, had the political resolve and the political will to actually deliver a deal. And there's a very low chance, I take it, that those unilateral steps come up on Wednesday during the summit? Mm, uh, yeah. I think some of them might actually. Mm. Really? I think some of them, I think that that based at least on some conversations I've had with folks, um, the White House is at least asking about those types of things. Um, at least on the economic side, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think that, that, that is more doable and less politically problematic. Um, you know, so some un positive unilateral steps in area C some you allow know, them to build, for instance. I, I would be surprised if they would allow them to build, but maybe uh, that's that's been a big one on everybody's plate for a number of years now, uh, and so. Uh, so what kind of economic steps? Just yeah, opening up roads. I mean, what? Opening up roads, allowing them to build in area C, new investments in in Gaza electricity plant, for example. Um, you, know, you can see stuff there. You could see. Um, you can see quiet requests for limitations on construction, but I don't think that that's really going to happen. Although Trump seems to be somewhat, at least not totally opposed to that concept. You can also see more investments in security on that side of the equation. Um, East Jerusalem could use some kind of a governing structure. You know, right now it's basically a no man's land. The Arab neighborhoods in East Jerusalem, you know, the Israeli police don't go in there and the Palestinian security forces are not allowed to go in there. And so maybe some kind of an agreement on something there, because yeah, it's. I mean, the two the two most dangerous things to the two state solution are are settlements and uh, you know the collapse of the Palestinian Authority. So you want to do things on both sides, restrain the settlement activity, but also try to make the Palestinians stronger. When I say building in Area C, I mean like building by the Palestinians in Area C. Yes. Yes. You don't think that that's the Israelis are likely to allow that? Right Here's my. They might even say that they'll allow it. But then the bureaucratic process is just so... The problem with any of these economic steps is they're actually much more likely to happen when they're quietly negotiated between Kogat and the Palestinians and nobody gets in the way. The second it actually becomes a political give to the president or to the Palestinians, suddenly there's this... What am I getting in return? Right. And so, you know, and we we were guilty of this in the carry process. You know, we took things that and we were advised by people not to do it, but things that we were that, that 
we took things that were slowly starting to happen, or the Israelis seemed willing to do, and said, yeah, well, we can make this part of the, you know, like moving forward in confidence building measures. And when second you do it, suddenly it's it moves from you know quiet professionals working on it to you know prime minister's office and the president's office negotiating it, and it's it's. You see the dynamic again and again and again. So I actually am worried. I, I, you know, I can see the new team making the same exact mistake now. You know, BB comes here with a whole suite of wonderful economic things he can do. You know, Trump and his team thinks that's great, but it would have all been better if none of it had ever been oh, raised. Okay. It would have been much more likely to happen. Speaking of economics, um, in foreign policy meetings, one of uh, President Trump's largest priorities has always been what can a foreign country, how can a foreign country help the U.S. economy? Do you see any discussion of that coming up vis-a-vis -vis Israel? Well, it's, it's interesting. It'd be a smart thing for them to talk about. Yeah. I'm, I don't know where it is in the list. I think we've got very healthy relationship and very healthy, you know, um, ties between particular parts of the economy, particularly the tech sectors. Um, you know, there's a lot of cross-investment between the U.S. and Israel in the, in the tech sector, so that, that might be. I think what's striking is actually that despite the fact that Israel is the number one recipient of um, U.S. security assistance um, mm -hmm. by far um, and is also probably the wealthiest country on the list. Um, it's not going to be subject to the sort of America first, warrant the allies doing more kind of thinking. It's kind well, of did, the exception. seemed ready to do that in March, right before he spoke to APAC. Hmm. I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's just curious. I mean, I think it's sort of, um, I think the, all indications so far is that, you know, Israel is sort of an exceptional case and he's not going to go down that road, but, um, but we'll see. Yeah. Sort of a good thing. I mean, it's interesting. His it's so hard to parse him right now. I think on this particular issue because you look at like Friedman and you look at the statements Greenblatt's making, and you can attribute that to Trump. And you you put him in one very specific place, but then you see, for example, this Israel Hayom interview, and it's such a different place, and it's and it's a place he's also spoken about, and so. Which one is he? It's it's uh, you know I think it everybody is seeing what they want to see, but but it's not clear. I think the other thing is you know in a normal situation, in the run up to a visit like this, you would have a very uh, extensive interagency process where you'd have cabinet officials and departments weighing in to develop the U.S. position and and talking points and so forth and kind of get everybody on the same sheet of music. That discipline process does not yet exist um, within the administration. Um, and so um, it's, it's, it's th these, these, these inconsistencies, apparent inconsistencies in policy for the moment are allowed to coexist because there's no process in place to really bring them to resolution at this point. Let me ask one last question. Um, so uh, Ambassador-designate Friedman is supposed to have his congressional hearings, I believe the day after, in the near Still future. Tentative. <laughs> Still tentative. Um, one could argue that's when the rubber will begin to meet the road on U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis Israel. Do you imagine the execution and the words that have come out this far uh, aligning well? 
or is that an impossible question? Well, Freeman is in a very different place than Trump seems to be on a whole bunch of these things. The American, you know, the American ambassador to Israel is not the policy maker or the policy determiner, ultimately. You know, it's much more, you know, people like Mattis, Tillerson, uh, Flynn, and Trump will be making... Kushner will be making many more decisions about American policy. The role of the ambassador is to weigh in on all those things, but also to, to, to execute. Um, though, again, as Michelle said, without a sort of normal, healthy policy process, you can see a lot of creativity. But coming on the heels of the Bibi visit, you know, I think the Israelis will rightly take their cues from what the prime minister hears from the president. And um, that combined with Trump's statements for all of his appointees that say, oh, I want them to express themselves in their confirmation hearings and they don't really, you know, it's fine if they have different views, those are their views, you know, they're not necessarily speaking for me. I mean, I think it means that whatever Friedman does say in the confirmation hearing will be that much less of an indicator of what U.S. actual policy will end up being. and I think we'll get a better sense of that from from the visit itself. Well, any last uh, any last statements or or words of advice or encouragement? <laughs> I mean, this is a critical relationship, and despite all the ups and downs um, in terms of the political theater, I really think we should keep in mind the sort of rock-solid foundation that we have in terms of the security relationship and the long-term commitment across multiple administrations. Um, it's going to take time for this administration to sort itself out and for all of these questions to be answered, um, but I think the relationship is actually in a in a good place. I think the biggest kind of con- points of concern are, you know, um, the Iran policy and whether they these two leaders decide to go down a track that could be very harmful, frankly, to their own interests long term. Um, and, and then second, um, on the peace process, whether they you know, keep their eye on the ball and make sure that you, you know, unilateral actions are not taken that undermine the chances of a two-state solution long term. Terrific. Well, thanks so much, Michelle and Alon. Uh, we'll be doing a transcript of this, which we will uh, send out, and uh, we'll be making, uh, we'll be hearing a lot in the coming days. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you.